Most of what I've been writing lately has been on evolution and creationism, but I know that not everyone cares about those subjects, so I wanted to release something else for all of you who've been patiently waiting to get back to other subjects. Patrons already know this, but I didn't care at all about evolution when I deconverted. I actually did not believe in evolution when I became an atheist. I didn't have an explanation for how biological complexity and diversity arose, but even then I knew I didn't need the right answer to know a wrong answer, in this case creationism, when it presented itself. I was safely sheltered from any knowledge of evolution until I was 19, which I had to seek out on my own, and I was only looking because I had the experience over and over again of telling someone I knew that I was an atheist and having them demand that I convince them that evolutionary biology was true in 10 seconds. This was frustrating to me because biological questions didn't factor into my atheism, but I was also annoyed at their flippant dismissal of an idea that it was clear they didn't know anything about. I mean, I didn't either, but I wasn't angrily rejecting it as a ridiculous theory that didn't make any sense. I was just kind of agnostic about it, I didn't care. All that to say, I know how you feel if you're a non-believer or a believer who doesn't care much about the evolution ID debate. I think Richard Dawkins was correct when he said Darwin enabled us to be, quote, intellectually fulfilled atheists, since we will naturally wonder about human origins and biological complexity. Darwin did not, however, enable us to be atheists, period. It was possible to figure out a designer probably didn't have anything to do with biology before Darwin, just like it was possible to figure out disease, earthquakes, lightning strikes, bad harvests, and so on weren't controlled by the gods, even when we didn't know what they were controlled by. David Hume, Thomas Hobbes, Jean Meslier, Percy Bysshe Shelley, and many others managed to be atheists before Darwin. So we're going to take a break from all that to discuss three modern Christian sayings that we've all heard before and been annoyed by. You were never a real Christian, love the sinner, hate the sin, and it's not a religion, it's a relationship. a real Christian. So how many ways can I say no true Scotsman? According to yourfallacyis.com, no true Scotsman is to make, quote, an appeal to purity as a way to dismiss relevant criticisms or flaws of your argument. In this form of faulty reasoning, one's belief is rendered unfalsifiable, because no matter how compelling the evidence is, one simply shifts the goalposts so that it wouldn't apply to a supposedly true example. This kind of post-rationalization is a way of avoiding valid criticisms. End quote. No true Catholic would rape children. No true Muslim would commit violence. No true believer could ever become an atheist. Well, here are nine gajillion examples of that. Well, there you go. They weren't true Scotsmen. This move enables one to dismiss any counterexample to their claim, rendering it completely unfalsifiable. It's not like they can see into my head and know that I never really believed. They just assert that because I'm not a Christian now, I must have never been one. Like so many other atheists, I really did believe. I repented. I accepted the free gift of salvation. I did missionary work. I had a personal relationship with Jesus. I had spiritual experiences regularly, and still do, by the way, in non-religious contexts. I was planning to work within the church, whether it was graphic design, music, preaching, or some other service, for my entire life. Look at Dan Barker, who was a former minister and worship leader, who had the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and still became an atheist. 
or Michael Shermer, who had a born-again experience and went door-to-door preaching the gospel, or the worship leader, Michael Gunger, who tragically has to pretend to be a Christian to keep his wife, kids, and job, which, to be clear, is my interpretation of his situation based on a candid interview I heard with him, which I'll link in the description. There are as many examples as you could possibly want of true believers who start off asking a few questions, learning a bit of science and philosophy, and end up leaving it all behind. The real question is, why do they ask if we were really Christians? Why are they hoping the answer is no? I think it's pretty obvious. It exposes weakness. It means it's possible to know everything they have to say, experience everything they have to experience, read everything they want you to read, and still think they're wrong. They can't accept that a reasonable person could think that they were wrong, and yet not lack any of the relevant knowledge. That means it's the atheist who knows something the Christian doesn't know, not the other way around. No true Scotsman is a helpful concept, but it can be misused. If something is well-defined ahead of time, there is no opportunity for no true Scotsman reasoning. For example, geometrical shapes are well-defined. All triangles have three sides, and their internal angles will always add up to 180 degrees. If I point to a shape and say, here's a triangle whose angles add up to 360 degrees, and you respond, well, that's not actually a triangle, I am not within my right to accuse you of a no true Scotsman. The main reason for this is that triangles were clearly defined ahead of time. There was no ad hoc reasoning, no goalposts were being moved, and no one disputes the basic definition of a triangle. A Christian is obviously a much messier, dynamic, and complex concept than geometrical shapes. It's barely an exaggeration to say that no two Christians have the same definition of Christianity, and it's not limited to non-salvation issues. And this is only amplified when you extend the conversation to Christians from the past. So who is a Christian and who isn't? Define Christian for me. What's the criteria for true Christianity? Is it by faith or by works? Do we need to be baptized? Do we need to take the Bible literally? Do we have to consider it to be inerrant or the word of God? Do we have to believe in a literal resurrection of Jesus? Do we have to believe in the Trinity? Do we have to believe Jesus is God? There are many genuine Christians on both sides of these questions. Merely agreeing with some of the teachings of Jesus can't be enough to be a Christian. By that definition, many non-theists and many Hindus are Christians, which would mean atheists and polytheists could be Christians. But some argue that Catholics are technically polytheists, and they're kind of convincing. Jordan Peterson calls himself a Christian, and he doesn't believe in a literal God, or the literal resurrection of Jesus' physical body 72 hours after his death, or that our first-person experience will continue after death in heaven. So how can you say I was never a real Christian when you can't even define Christian? No two believers seem to have the same idea of God or Christianity, and as I mentioned, this is only amplified when you include Christians from the past. I wonder if there's any overlap between the people who claim I was never a real Christian and those who claim I'm not really an atheist. I'm not an atheist because I accept religious presuppositions, or because I'm not ceaselessly raping and murdering, or because I know the truth deep down. Well, which is it? Was I never a real Christian, or am I not a real atheist? You were never a real Christian is just a lazy attempt to dismiss the rising tide of disillusioned believers. Love the sinner, hate the sin. 
This isn't found in the Bible explicitly, though it can be found in one of Augustine's letters from the 5th century. His words roughly translate to, with love for mankind and hatred of sins. Hate the sin and not the sinner also appeared in Gandhi's 1929 autobiography, but he said that it was, quote, rarely practiced. At face value, love the sinner, hate the sin is not a totally bad ethic. It's supposed to be about forgiveness and trying to find a way to love imperfect people despite their shortcomings. What, are we supposed to hate everyone who makes a mistake? No one's perfect. So yeah, hate the sin and love the sinner. The problem is when they begin to define sin. Plenty of sins are not immoral. According to Christians, premarital sex is a sin, divorce is a sin, abortion is a sin, being gay is a sin. If you do a quick search for love the sinner, hate the sin, you'll be inundated with Christians debating the question of how to handle LGBT people. That seems to be the primary application of love the sinner, hate the sin. Should Christians give in to the cultural pressure to accept marriage equality? What should they think about gay Christians? Or the trans pastor who started a church in the South? What's good and evil in the eyes of religion is not always what's good and evil to any sensible person. Flipping a light switch on Saturday is definitely not immoral. It's not wrong to be an atheist. It's not immoral for a woman to marry another woman. Though it is a sin. I'm sorry, gay Christians, but homosexuality is an abomination according to your perfect God. I wish your religion was better too, believe me. But you should probably come to grips with the fact that you are more moral than your God, and that your religion is and always has been an obstacle to moral progress in this area. Christianity requires you to be a worse person than you are naturally. So love the sinner, hate the sin won't work if the sin is not immoral in the first place. The issue lies with what Christians consider sin, rather than with the ideal itself. And based on what I read, the application of the principle hasn't exactly been a success. Ask nearly any Christian LGBT person on the receiving end of being loved while their sin is being hated, and they will tell you that it pretty much feels the same as being hated. Because being gay or trans isn't just an action. It's something you are, not just something you do. So the ethic is a completely dysfunctional one in its primary area of application in the modern world. But let's move away from Christian land where gay marriage is evil, biblical slavery was complicated, and the Amalekite genocide was good, and into moral acts that are usually, if not universally, condemned, like rape or murder. Does love the sinner, hate the sin work with something like murder? It might be possible in the abstract to love the murderer, hate the murder, or love the rapist, hate the rape, but in practice, it's not so easy. I'm not sure human psychology is wired for the kinds of nuance required to put this ideal into practice. I'm also not sure we would want to put it into practice. It's at least possible in the abstract, barring the messy realities of human psychology, which calls its practical usefulness into question, but I'm not sure it even would be desirable. In what sense do you hate child murder if you're totally cool with people who do it? Immoral or antisocial acts are disincentivized by negative social reactions to them, right? If we just hate the behavior in the abstract, but never punish those who actually engage in the behavior, what's the point of hating the sin? Is it really ideal to live in a society where there are no social consequences to behaving immorally? It's not popular to say, but it's appropriate and even good to hate in countless contexts. Hating evil is the appropriate response to evil. Evil is brought into the world by human actions. There is natural evil, of course, but it doesn't make sense to get mad at a hurricane because a hurricane doesn't respond to social pressure. But humans do, even though they're just as determined as hurricanes. 
So it makes sense to establish moral norms and punish those who deviate by stealing, lying, murdering, raping, and so on and so forth. Think about kicking a vending machine and how nonsensical that behavior is. You're communicating your anger to something that will not change its behavior as a result of how you feel. We hold people responsible and teach morality because social animals like ourselves are responsive to social attitudes brought about by our actions. When you hold someone morally responsible, it's about communicating that you didn't like what happened and that there's an expectation that the person will either try to defend what they did or apologize. When other people are involved, the pressure is augmented, and certain norms get reinforced and then integrated throughout the community through these exchanges. If there is no disincentive for immoral behavior, then shouldn't we change that? Shouldn't we disincentivize harmful actions? As I mentioned at the beginning, the purpose of an ethic like love the sinner, hate the sin seems to be one of forgiveness. It's an attempt to maintain the social framework I just outlined by providing a path to redemption. So maybe the ethic can be salvaged, at least in the abstract. Forgiveness is important, and I don't want to write that off completely. However, it's still unclear if love the sinner, hate the sin can actually be practiced, which is not a small concern if we're talking about applied ethics, which is what this platitude is all about. An ethic that can't be carried out in practice is utterly useless. I'm also not sure it actually does preserve the social fabric, since it's just as much an argument against giving praise as it is an argument against blame. It's a precept that undermines moral responsibility. It would be totally asymmetrical to remove blame for those who do wrong, but allow praise and credit for those who do right. If no one can be hated, then no one can be admired. If we can't hate those who commit evil, we can't love those who do good. Moral responsibility is a two-way street. So I'm not sure we would want to anyway, but the reality is that it's very hard for us to separate the action from the actor. It's hard for human beings to divorce who someone is from what they do. And I don't think that's due to irrationality on our part. To quote the philosopher Galen Strawson, you do what you do in the circumstances in which you find yourself because of who you are. Who you are determines what you will do. It's for this reason that I think Gandhi was wrong when he wrote in 1929, quote, Hate the sin and not the sinner is a precept which, though easy enough to understand, is rarely practiced. So to sum up, the problem often lies in what Christians consider to be sin, which undermines the whole ideal from the beginning. I'm also not convinced that the idea makes sense even in the abstract, since you do what you do because of who you are. I'm also not convinced the ethic could actually be practiced by human beings, which is a bit of a snag. Moreover, I'm not convinced we would want to put this ethic into practice even if we could, since it's fundamentally an attack on all moral responsibility. No one could be held accountable for their behavior, good or evil, because we've completely separated everyone from their actions. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. If this idea is so central to Christianity, as many Christians insist, then why is there absolutely no mention of it anywhere in the Bible? The phrase personal relationship is found nowhere, nor is there any analog to the phrase in the Old or New Testament. It's not mentioned by Paul, Jesus, John, or Moses. 
Why didn't any of them mention it explicitly if it's so central to the true understanding of Christianity? And why does that phrase not appear anywhere until the last hundred years or so, if it's not simply a modern invention made in response to modern pressures? Modern pressures like the availability of information, the rise of secularism and science, and the fact that no one can claim ignorance of the violence, repression, hate, and destruction caused by religion over the past couple thousand years that continues into the present day, all of which is only constrained by the fact that we don't take religion as seriously as we used to and don't give it the power that we used to. To state the obvious, Christianity is a religion, and there doesn't seem to be any doubt as to whether it's a religion or not when it comes to tax exemptions. Relationships don't have the same tax privileges in the U.S. as religions, but I'm guessing it's a religion when it comes to the $80 billion a year, conservatively, in tax revenue we would get if churches had to follow the same rules as everyone else. $80 billion a year. So it's a relationship when I point to the history of religion and the present-day actions of the parties of God, but it's a religion again when it comes to paying taxes. What you believe. Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. <laughs> I've never had a relationship where I had to argue about the existence of the person I'm in a relationship with, except in junior high when my girlfriend went to a different school, you don't know her. So there's a video from 2012 on YouTube by a Christian hipster named Jefferson Bethke. It's entitled, Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus and it's Christian slam poetry. This video inexplicably has 33 million views and a very positive like to dislike ratio, despite the fact that it's nothing but utterly vapid and meaningless bromides and lazy turns of phrase. vital to mention how Jesus and religion are on opposite spectrums. See, one's the work of God, but one's a man-made invention. See, one is the cure, but the other's the infection. See, because religion says do, Jesus says done. Religion says slave, Jesus says son. Religion puts you in bondage while Jesus sets you free. Religion makes you blind, but Jesus makes you see. Now I ain't judging, I'm just saying, quit putting on a fake look. Because there's a problem if people only know that you're a Christian by your Facebook. See, this was me too, but no one seemed to be on to me. Acting like a church kid while addicted to pornography. I mean, if religion is so great, why has it started so many wars? Why does it build huge churches, but fails to feed the poor? Tell single moms God doesn't love them if they've ever had a divorce, but in the Old Testament, God actually calls religious people whores. Religion might preach grace, but another thing they practice, tend to ridicule God's people, they did it to John the Baptist. They can't so religion is not so good. So Bethke admits that. And jokes aside, you can kind of see what he's getting at, right? Sure, he's technically a Christian, but that doesn't mean he loves the church, for example. Having a relationship with Jesus doesn't necessarily require that you accept every word of the Bible, and it doesn't require that you subscribe to theological concepts like sin. So if you have a relationship with Jesus, but you don't have any love for the church or the Bible or concepts like sin, then maybe it kind of makes sense. Now let me clarify. I love the church, I love the Bible, and yes, I believe in sin. Okay, so you're a follower of Jesus Christ the founder of the world's largest religion, you love the church, a religious institution, you love the Bible, the best-selling religious holy book, you believe in religious notions of sin, you think Jesus was a divine being who you worship, you also think he was the Messiah, which is a religious concept. 
It is beyond disingenuous at this point to say that you're not religious. Even if part of Christianity is having a relationship with Jesus, why does that make it not a religion? The two are not mutually exclusive. It is a religion and a relationship. How is being in relationship with a god not religious in nature? Unless you're being totally pedantic and just redefining terms to distance yourself from religion. The widespread propagation of it's not a religion, it's a relationship does have a silver lining. They're conceding that religion is a bad thing and that no one should want to be associated with it. That's all I have for you today, and I have a new patron to thank, Christy Ann Pierre and Tony. Thank you, Christy Ann, and I'd like to thank my patron Hall of Fame, Jesta, Phil Stilwell, Richard Crossan, Nathan Grounds, and Pre Nifty. And you can support this show on a per episode basis at patreon.com slash counter where you can earn early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon because you're a Christian slam poet, you can find me on Facebook, YouTube, leave a five-star review on iTunes, or tell your friends about the podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll see you next time.